the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as uh, we head into Hour 3 this Tuesday, November 24th, 2020. The um, anti-penultimate day before Thanksgiving, if I'm not mistaken. Only you would know that. I think it's the anti-penultimate day, A-N-T-E, anti-penultimate mm-hmm. day before Thanksgiving. We, we, we tribute William Buckley's birthday today by using that phraseology. That other voice you hear is my dear friend and running partner, Hugh Hallman, former mayor of Tempe. He joins us every Tuesday in our third hour to talk COVID and politics and COVID and politics. Um, he is usually accompanied by his son, Louis, who is not with us today because Louis, as I was uh, privileged to attend to, was um, married this weekend and is off on his honeymoon. So we wish uh, the new Hallman uh, family all the very best for this Thanksgiving year, as I wish you, Hugh, and your family the best for this Thanksgiving year. There was... Uh, and to you. Thank you. Great, great series uh, from originally Dr. Seuss on the Grinch that stole Christmas. Were he alive today, maybe he would have... Or we would have to have a Grinch that stole Thanksgiving. I have to tell you, I was I was wrong about several things this election season. I know, but one of them was I really thought on November fourth we'd see a recession rather than a, um, a an incline in the coverage and hysteria over COVID. I have a new theory about when we might see a recession on it, or at least a reduction in the coverage and the hysteria over it. But it's spiking the hysteria. Isn't it? Absolutely. And uh, we now have uh, portions of our society uh, going into lockdowns with advisors uh, from government suggesting that one shan't meet with one's family members for Thanksgiving. One certainly shouldn't speak loudly among family members for fear that one would spread a virus and other kinds of things that are just puzzling. We still know the data hasn't changed given how much has been piled up. That we know who's at risk. We know that uh, almost 80% of all deaths are 65 and over. A large proportion of that are for 75 and over. And all of those people tend to have comorbidities. We should be very careful around grandma and grandpa. My mother-in-law, sadly, did not attend her grandson's wedding. Now, uh, she's actually of pretty good health, but not great health. She is 85 years old. Uh, But the uh, rehearsal dinner was attended by a couple of Mm 90-year-olds. Um, uh, who decided that living life and engaging in those activities was more important than avoiding death. And I I attribute that concept to you, Seth, the brilliant insight that avoiding death is not the same thing as living. We we, we point this stuff out, and we're absolutely right to do so. I had a caller the other day, Hugh, and I was conflicted about it because it it came from a very decent place. He wanted to read a psalm about overcoming... Uh, uh, pestilence, if you will, or disease, and he thought it would be good if Americans read a psalm about overcoming afflictions. And and I was conflicted about it because um, far be it for me to ever interfere with the reading of a psalm. I like that idea very much, and uh, many of us start our days reading psalms. 
On the other hand, you tell me you're the epistemologist here. I don't want us to think we're anywhere in the realm of something that constitutes anything like plagues, 10 plagues. I am looking at the CDC website right now, right now, and they have an infection fatality ratio. What we mean by that is we don't know how many people actually are infected with the virus SARS-CoV-2. We still don't have enough effort by government sources or any private sources to give us a real sense of how broadly this population, the U.S. population or any place for that matter, has been infected by the virus because we do know that a huge proportion of people who have the virus show no symptoms. And so they are not likely to get tested. So the people who are getting tested are those who get tested for jobs, those who get tested because they have symptoms, those who go into the hospital and get tested. And so we have a very biased basis for understanding how many people actually have been infected compared to how many people have died. We rarely uh, fail to count all the people who've died. And in some instances, the U.S. specifically, count them with some excess concern. So the U.S., for example, now counts anyone who had a positive COVID-19 test if they die from any reason within 60 days of that positive test, they get counted as a COVID-19 death. Contrast that with now even Great Britain has withdrawn from the 60-day test and is now at the 28-day marker. And there have been studies demonstrating the very different numbers one gets if you stop including everyone after date 30 and uh, all the way to day 60, who might die of a heart attack but happen to have tested positive for COVID-19 sometime in the prior 60 days. It's craziness that the U.S. keeps this self-flagellation process going on, and you were saying. Yes, but the CDC does have what they call their current best estimate, using their language, on their infection fatality ratio. That is to say, chances of dying if you are infected with covid at And they age, have three or four models of that. Yes, but the, 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 they're... they're, they're their current best estimate model, the one that they find the best, has if you are 0 to 19 years of age, you have a 0.00003% chance of dying. That is to say three, ten, three ten thousandths of a percent chance of dying from COVID. If you are 20 to 49, you have a 0. 0.0002, which means you have a 99.9998% chance of survival. If you are in the age group between 50 and 69 years, the current best es estimate infection fatality ratio, according to the CDC, is 0 0.005, which means you have a 99.995 chance of surviving. And if you are over the age of 70, it's 0 0.054, which means you have a 99.95% of survival. Thus, I was conflicted about my caller because I don't – yes, we have this thing among us, but I don't want us to think, first of all, that everyone's going to get it, but more importantly, that if you do get it, you are under a death sentence. You are the walking dead. You are not. That's correct. And the, the fear-mongering that has gone on has people withdrawing from life and life activities that are what provide meaning to life. And how long does one want to withdraw from the actual concept of living? Um, certainly one can live a robust life if one is stuck at home. Uh, lots of people are homebound. We know this. We, however, try to reach out to them uh, during normal times and provide some alternatives and assistance and, and even opportunities to escape being homebound. Uh, in this 
current environment, we see a governmental intention to require us all to be homebound and a complete lack of understanding that there are consequences of consigning especially younger people to living life behind closed doors where they no longer are engaging with their peers, where we have just spent uh, a decade or so trying to encourage kids to get away from computer screens and their Game Boys and other kinds of electronic devices, and now instead we're telling them to go sit in front of a computer screen, and that's the best way to deliver education to them. I say nonsense because the likelihood of infection and uh, morbid outcome, not necessarily death, but some terrible outcome, is very, very low in the population of school-age kids, 20 and under. Uh, very, very low probability of outcome. And there are now studies starting to de- develop that demonstrate that, in fact, the spread from and among children is quite low and slow. And the spread from and um, from children to adults is limited. And, in fact, that schools may provide the best employment opportunities for people uh, out there, that uh, you're better off teaching a class than you are serving in a Starbucks or some other a fast food location or so many other activities that we continue to see folks engage in on a daily basis. So we ended up with a whole bunch of people who used to say they were absolutely essential workers suddenly now claiming that the last thing they want to do is do their essential job and show up at work in their classrooms. Uh, those kinds of ironies and difficulties are uh, puzzling to people like me and you. And I think by nature, by the sense of what drives conservatism and conservatives, the whole the whole side of the universe just gets puzzled by this. Uh, the the in honor of the thinking man's candidate, uh, senator uh, candidate Senator Buckley, um, when asked or when was described as the thinking man's candidate by a, a woman who was enthralled with his efforts, said, yes, madam, but I need a majority. Mm-hmm. I think that may be our biggest problem. Yeah. And who knew that it would collapse this fast? I saw a Dr. Marty McCary from uh, Johns Hopkins University talking uh, last Friday about a study. 35,000 students studied in South Carolina. Um, 35,000 students, 100 infections among them, not one case of transmission from that 100 into that body of 35,000. Not 100, one. Only 100 out of 35,000 and not a single transmission right. identified. Right. And in fact, there are similar studies now uh, holding that same kind of outcome, that the transmission rates are very, very low. And in fact, the people within schools who are employees who are coming up with uh, cases of COVID seem to have been infected by colleagues who brought it to the school, not from the children. Right, and then got it elsewhere. And yet we have states. We have states that, um, like in Virginia, that require children from age two onward to wear a mask. It's insanity, and it will do a lot of damage. I'm Seth. He's Hugh. Our phone number, if you want to call in, is 602-508-0960. A lot more coming up. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. In talking about this, um, Hugh and I have uh, Hugh Holman, my guest, and I have been um, have been thinking about what it means to talk about public health and what it means to have experts in society in especially times of an unprecedented uh, an unprecedented pandemic. Scott Atlas, someone I've had on this show, someone whose work I have very much appreciated and agreed with, um, was previously at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He's an MD physician who uh, used to be uh, the head of, uh, of the department of, uh, I, I believe it was nuclear radiology at Stanford, if I'm not, Stanford Medical School, if I'm not mistaken. He joined the administration uh, about three or four months ago to help them and to help out with analysis and messaging on COVID and has had some public disagreements with Anthony Fauci. To that end, Stanford did something I was shocked by, Hugh. Shocked. The Faculty Senate, which is to say every member of the faculty at Stanford, convened a meeting, of course by Zoom, to censure to condemn, to vote to condemn or censure Scott Atlas for his statements on the COVID crisis. And 85% of the faculty agreed with that censure, with that public condemnation of their colleague from Stanford who deigned to go to work for President Trump and speak what he thought was the most rational reaction to the coronavirus response and proper response. preparations and yeah. activities that one should undertake. It was shocking to me. I never thought we'd come so far as to see a place like Stanford faculty by a vote of 85 percent condemning one of their own for having the quote unquote wrong scientific opinions. This wasn't as if he was some kind of William Shockley expatiating about race issues this wasn't as if he was some kind of neo-fascist invoking the Third Reich as an ideal model of governance. He was using the same kind of medical science that has been used by people in the Great Barrington Declaration, guests and physicians I've had on this show, guests and physicians who have emailed me, epidemiologists from Harvard and Oxford and Stanford itself that have agreed with him. But the overwhelming majority of the Senate faculty, most of which do not have medical degrees, by the way, as Scott Atlas does, thought he deserved public censure. That's frightening. It should be frightening to everybody listening to the sound of your voice because what we are now developing is a society that was originally founded on the notion that we should all engage in the public square in debates on these kinds of topics and do so openly and we're now following a Soviet-style uh, approach that if you do not agree with the uh, uh, measured opinion of those who seek power, uh, you will be condemned and thrown into uh, the ash heap of history along with the former Soviet Union. So here you've got Scott Atlas, a, a very well-educated, thoughtful person, articulating rational approaches to how to handle the, uh, the pandemic and what our response to the coronavirus should be. Not unlike some of the stuff you've been listening to from Lewis Hallman and Hugh Hallman for the last nine months. 
I've had it reported back to me that uh, through friends and colleagues that some folks have said that I just get the numbers wrong and I really should be stopped from being on the radio no kidding. because I'm not articulating the, um, the narrative that some seek. Yes, we should listen to scientists, but which ones? Only those that agree with our opinions? So to be clear, we know we have science, we have political science, and now we have political science. And the argument from the left tends to be that if you don't agree with the scientists that agree with their worldview, then you clearly are listening to people who uh, don't deserve the degrees they've earned. And it is interesting that there have been through history scientists and medical physicians who have earned amazing degrees and done spectacular work. I was just reviewing the the resume of a physician who actually did research at the Institute for Hereditary Biology and received his Ph.D. and was awarded uh, a, a further degree um, and was thought of as one of the finest f- physicians in that society. He did his work to try to help children, specifically focused his research on the genetic factors leading to cleft lip and palate and cleft chin so that uh, science might help uh, prevent those afflictions on children and thought of as a great scientist. Well, the left talks about the fact that uh, Donald Trump is, uh, is a Nazi in this instance, there are many scientists now who arguably are grabbing that mantle from the left because the scientist I was just describing, this physician who well is respected, well regarded, well respected, well regarded. And even today, his research was, is viewed as being valid scientific work the world over. That was Dr. Joseph Mengele, who committed some of the worst atrocities on humanity that we've ever seen. So the first notion that scientists should be listened to pretends that there is no uh, value system that those scientists are imposing when they're making judgments. And that is exactly the problem we face, because scientists have judgments that they bring to the table when undertaking their investigations. And that is part of the reason that the left can point to some and say, these people are to be believed, but those people on the right are not, like Dr. Scott Atlas. They are bringing judgments to the table. And my view is that with respect to all of them, one should read carefully anything they're writing, all of the research, and understand carefully the judgments that are implied within the work that's undertaken. And we as thinking people have an obligation to do that and help develop the result of what the right policies are because science does not provide the answer. It provides tools that help us find the answer, but as human beings, we have to turn on our brains and try to take everything that's out there and and massage it to come up with the right conclusions. And as we continue to speak about on this show, the conclusions I reach are we know who to protect mm-hmm. and we know who should be back in school. Mm-hmm. Don't put grandma in school. Put the kids back in school. It- and let's get our society rolling again in a way that will assure that we educate our students so that we have greater thinking minds in the future who do not subject us to silly politicized decisions because uh, they feel like they need to carry out a narrative to the end. It's a weird society that gives an Emmy to a governor who has the highest death count from COVID in the country for his speeches. 
and a society that condemns a president who, through a miraculous operation of his own, may not have spoken very well, but achieved a vaccine for this thing within a year. In fact, three. It's an interesting society that does that. I want to come back on the science question, too, when we do come back. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Hugh Hallman, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. My guest is Hugh Hallman. Rick, stay on the line. We're going to come to you in a minute. I wanted to finish this thing having to do with masks and the fetish around it, Hugh. As they talk about more mask mandates around the country, and as Joe Biden does, new survey came out, 83% of the country already says they wear a mask in most environments, um, which should tell us something if that is such an efficacious tool. How is this how, spread How happening? are the cases happening? But as to what scientists to believe, the head of the CDC, Dr. Redfield, said in Senate testimony that the mask may protect him better than a vaccine. Denmark comes out with a study last week, one of the largest random controlled trials on masks, and finds that wearing a mask has no effect on protecting you from the coronavirus. I'm looking at a study from the World Health Organization. I'll just quote directly, if I might, from this year. There is currently no evidence that wearing a mask, whether medical or other types, by healthy persons in the wider community setting, including universal community masking, can prevent from infection with respiratory viruses, including COVID-19. Close quote. New England Journal of Medicine, which I think everyone agrees is the gold standard of the highest standard of medical journal from earlier this year. Quote, we know that wearing a mask outside healthcare facilities offers little, if any, protection from infection. Public health authorities define a significant exposure to COVID-19 as face-to-face contact within six feet with a patient with symptomatic COVID-19 that is sustained for at least 10 to 30 minutes. The chance of catching COVID-19 from passing interaction in a public space is is minimal. And, wi- and and widespread, ma- widespread masking is merely a reflection, a reflexive reaction to anxiety. Close quote. CDC itself, from before Dr. Redfield testified, quote, there is limited evidence for mask effectiveness in preventing virus transmission, either when worn by the infected person for source control or when worn by uninfected persons to reduce exposure. Close quote. Who the hell are you supposed to believe? And why the hell do we condemn people who cite those studies? The fascinating, uh, most fascinating study came out of uh, an institute in Washington. It proposed uh, that masks were particularly helpful in reducing the spread of infection. But in reaching that conclusion, it had used data that was approximately six months old to make the argument and assumptions that the percentage of people wearing masks was somewhat below 50% and that if we increase the propensity of mask wearing, we would have a reduction in the number of deaths by something above 100,000 over a short period of time. Well, when one started peeling that apart, as I, my son Lewis, and others did, including the Wall Street Journal, one discovered that the data was out of date, the assumption was false, 
and that when one looked at the actual uh, results from the survey, checking on those people who had worn masks, it was convenient that the study threw out, uh, that is, disposed of the data of uh, that you're citing, which is that approximately 80% of the population believes it's wearing masks when appropriate, that if that is the case and we're facing a surge again, that in and of itself should have been proof to the writers that masks and their efficacy in stopping the spread should be in question. But nobody wants to raise those issues. It's rather like the New York Times uh, doing a story that argued that there were significant spread of the disease and specifically uh, throughout states that were not uh, previously infected and that if we took different protocols – we would have reduced death rates. And they examined what they called excess deaths to prove that there were, at the time they did this study in middle of October, more than 60,000 excess deaths in this country from COVID-19. Then the footnotes. The footnote included that they had cherry-picked their data. They actually admitted that when they gathered all their data together, they examined the data from states only for weeks in which there were reported deaths above the normal average number of deaths and specifically excluded the weeks in which there were fewer. Cherry-picking your data so that you can say that there are excess deaths and ignoring all of those weeks in which there were not only not excess deaths but a reduction in number of deaths. We saw that at the beginning of this pandemic. We saw the CDC reporting that we actually had a drop in expected death rates because so many people were closed up in their homes. It would be nice if we could just become Americans again. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Hugh Hallman, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. I'm Seth. He's Hugh Coleman. Wanted to do a word uh, with Hugh on um, the anniversary of William Buckley's birth today. His, it would have been his 95th year. Before we do that, let's go to Rick in Phoenix, who wanted to close us out on uh, some COVID talk. Hi, Rick. Hi there, Seth. Thank uh, you for taking my call. Of course, sir. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thank you. And uh, it's so good to uh, hear you and, and Hugh, and thank you guys uh, very much for the terrific job you're doing of uh, uh, spreading some light and information on this important subject. i got to tell you, Rick, you know, i got to take this moment to just thank Hugh, myself, yeah. and his son for coming in and doing this. Um, I saw a uh, television reporter today on Twitter criticizing uh, someone who gave an interview on the radio. It wasn't this show. Um, but saying, is really it really is radio the only place you're going to do interviews on COVID? And I thought to myself, my gosh, if the reporters would have listened to the Hallmans for the one week, never mind the last uh, several months, I think we'd have a different uh, journalistic atmosphere in this country. Amen. Uh, Amen. Yeah, the Hallmans and and Heather and a uh, few others out there. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. That's very kind, Rick. Yes. Yes. Appreciate it very much, Hugh. The reason I'm calling, and uh, I'd like to just throw something out here for you guys to respond to or chew on or whatever, I think the greatest problem that we face in our culture is not systemic racism, it is systemic evil. And the reason that I have come to that conclusion is that something is dramatically impacting the thinking of 
millions and millions of Americans so that they literally cannot see the truth. And you know that old saying, there's none so blind as those who will not see. Sunday, I was speaking to a close friend uh, about this whole coronavirus thing, and Imprimus had an article by one of the authors of the uh, Great Barrier Declaration uh, uh, deal, and uh, and I asked him, you know, what did you think about that? He said, well, and this is a very thoughtful man, he said, well, do you really think it's a good idea to change what we've been doing uh, in light of the growing threat that's coming along now? <laughs> I just thought to myself. <laughs> that's very oh, funny. That itself is a funny question. It is. It's, it's crazy. Do you think it's smart to change what we've been doing in response to the growing threat? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I pointed out to him, I said, you know, <laughs> we've been wearing masks. We've been social distancing. We've been washing our hands. And yet, the, the, you know, supposedly we still have this big increase. It seems to me that what's going on, and, I, and I'll leave it with you guys uh, after this statement, it seems to me that what is going on is that the truth that you and Hugh and Heather and a few others are telling is literally being overwhelmed by the left and by their propaganda arm, the media, so that people can't hear the truth anymore. They've heard the lies so often, so much, that they've come to believe the lies are true. So I'm going to turn it to you guys, and thank you again. Thank you, Rick. Um, you know, Hugh, there is a lot of exp- there are a lot of explanations that... Um, that could be used to try and explain where they are. The first doctor I had, a local physician here in town, was telling me she thinks a lot of this from at least political leadership comes from a perhaps authoritarian personality. That may explain some of it. It doesn't explain the rest of the culture that has gone along with it. Um, We, um, as a country, used to have the notion that there are things worth and death. Give me liberty or give me death was how our country started. Even into the 70s, we were saying better dead than red. Uh, William Buckley said that. Ronald Reagan said that. Um, In the 1860s, we went to war with the song on our lips, as he died to make men holy, we shall die to make men free. His truth is marching on. Um, We've always thought as a culture that death was not the most important thing to avoid in consideration of other important values and virtues. That's in one silo, and I always have to immediately bridge it to the next one, which is, and death isn't the necessary result of affliction from the coronavirus anyway by a percentile of 99.9 plus percent. So something here has gone very, very dramatically wrong. And I don't know if we've wussified ourselves to death, if I can even say that on air. I'll take the punishment if I the can. The FCC will now punish you for wussified. Or if we me. have become a nation of cowards 
are a nation so primed to believe we're always on the eve of destruction, as the old song goes, or at the end of the world as we know it, or if we always want to believe the worst about ourselves or in ourselves. It seems that we've had every decade something that someone wants to convince us is bringing about the end, whether it's the Ehrlichs and the population bomb or whether it's uh, 16-year-olds uh, from Europe telling us that we're watching entire ecosystems disappear before our very eyes, uh, or whether it's Carl Sagan and nuclear winter. Um, there's always a, a leftist uh, tendency to tell us we're on the eve of destruction. But it took hold. This year it took hold. And it surprised me. I guessed you guessed wrong about things in the election. I guessed wrong about America's response to lockdowns and uh, government action. Mm-hmm. But to get to Rick's point, I believe Edmund Burke already told us the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Mm -hmm. And too many good men and women have uh, been sitting on the sidelines, uh, not engaged. And it's engaging in the day-to-day work of educating our youth and educating our friends and neighbors about what it means to be human and what it means to be free. And those two features in this society are unique in the world. And we have, I think, taken it for granted to a point that we are at risk at losing it. Uh, Justice O'Connor recently wrote, uh, well, about a decade ago, that uh, she was concerned about how judges were being politicized and that she added that it is a long road to tyranny, But you never get to the end of that road if you don't start at the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. Nice. We avoid these ends by by avoiding the beginnings. That's correct. Nicely put. We'll be right back. You know how to dance to that kind of music, don't you, Hugh Hallman? Little Randy Travis. Good stuff. Second time I ever met you, boy, you were cutting a rug to country music. Um, We kept threatening to talk about the anniversary of Bill Buckley's um, birth. I did some in the first hour, Hugh. You have been in the trenches of the conservative movement for longer than I have. Would you like to say a couple words on the occasion of his 95th year of birth? In fact, it reminds me of the things for which I am thankful. In this week of Thanksgiving... Uh, the anti-penultimate day of Thanksgiving, tomorrow being the penultimate day of Thanksgiving, that there are people for whom I really have to be grateful and don't think about often enough. And I I actually think about my mother on a daily basis. Uh, She worked for a man named Barry Goldwater in the early days here in this state. The first person who took on segregation in Arizona in a full-throated way. He forced the desegregation of the military and the National Guard in the state of Arizona two years before the national uh, military uh, services were desegregated. He pushed for the desegregation of education in the state of Arizona two years before Brown v. Board of Education. That's a remarkable human being. And But for people like William F. Buckley, there would not have been a Barry Goldwater on the national scene. It was local business people and politicos here in the state of Arizona who worked together, who did believe in liberty and a smaller government, but also understood that government can achieve important ends that we collectively need to achieve, like defense and other elements that create a free society. 
And I have to be thankful on a on a daily basis, and certainly this Thanksgiving, for William F. Buckley, who gave us Barry Goldwater on a national scale, and but for Barry Goldwater, we would not have had Ronald Reagan as president in 1980. And as dark as the days seem now, uh, it was but 16 brief, miserable years from the time Barry Goldwater sought the presidency to the time that Ronald Wilson Reagan achieved it. And I will be thankful on a daily basis for that progress we made. On that we say, God bless, and until tomorrow, class dismissed.